Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. We're recording this episode on Friday, July 31st. It's almost August, Jordan. Where did July go? Tell me. (laughs) This is part of our summer reading series. This week, we, like every other Supreme Court watcher, we're reading CNN's four-part series, taking a look at the justices' private deliberations. You read the series, right, Jordan? I did. We're going to chat about that. We're also going to talk about how the justices are handling coronavirus claims, including the latest five to four shadow docket split. And former President Barack Obama, remember him? speaks out about SCOTUS and voting rights during Representative John Lewis's funeral. We also got yet another RBG health update and, and, and we were treated to another installment of Justice Breyer being, um, well, Justice Breyer by zooming and creating what will surely be a historic meme. That latest 5-4 case came out on Friday night in Calvary Chapel against Nevada. As in a previous church COVID case from California, Chief Justice Roberts again joined the four Democratic appointees. And without explanation, the majority rejected the church's argument that the state was unlawfully discriminating by capping church attendance at 50 people, but letting places like casinos operate at 50% capacity. Justice Alito wrote the main dissent in that case, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, each wrote their own two. But here's how Justice Alito begins his dissent, which pretty much sums up the issue here. So he said, quote, the Constitution guarantees the free exercise of religion. It says nothing about the freedom to play craps or blackjack, to feed tokens into a slot machine, or to engage in any other game of chance. But the governor of Nevada apparently has different priorities. And for more on that case, let's turn to our guest, who was one of the lawyers representing the church. John Bursch, is Senior Counsel and Vice President of Appellate Advocacy with Alliance Defending Freedom. He's argued 12 Supreme Court cases, most recently one of the just-completed terms blockbusters, RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes against EEOC. John previously served as Michigan's Solicitor General from 2011 to 2013. John, thanks so much for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So, Nevada's treatment of casinos provides a stark contrast to churches, as we saw in the vivid dissents in this case. But are casinos really the right thing to compare the churches to here? For example, the state noted in its brief that it actually treats churches better than, say, concerts where no one can attend at all. Well, when it comes to the free exercise clause in the First Amendment, the question is not whether a church is treated better than some groups, it's whether it's being treated less favorably than any comparable groups. And when we're thinking about comparable groups, I I think casinos are fairly within that category. It might be a little bit different if you were talking about a grocery store. There was a, a previous U.S. Supreme Court order in a case called South Bay out of California where Chief Justice Roberts was the deciding vote and he wrote a special concurrence to make that point clear. In a, rest- or a, a grocery store, you might have people coming in and out, it's very transient, and so people aren't next to each other for long periods of time. But when you're talking about casinos, uh, you could be sitting at the slot machines or the blackjack table, the poker table, um, for hours on end, and often in a situation where people are gonna be less careful than they would in churches. In addition, these casinos in Las Vegas have large entertainment venues. Uh, So maybe you can't go to a concert, but you can certainly go to a concert at a casino and be sitting next to people, again, for long periods of time. 
So for the casinos to be allowed to have large numbers of people while churches are restricted to a maximum of 50 is a flagrant violation of the First Amendment. And so just to flesh out your position here, so say hypothetically if casinos were also subject to the 50 to the 50 person rule that churches are would you then agree that the state's rule is okay or put differently is it enough for churches to be treated the same as everything else or is your argument essentially that churches would then still need to be treated better than the casino for example yeah you raise an interesting point there because under the the first amendment free exercise clause Uh, It protects the exercise of religion. As as the dissents in this case note, there is no constitutional right to gamble or to go to entertainment venues. And so at least arguably, uh, even a restriction that treated a church as well as everybody else could be unconstitutional. But that was not the theory that this case was litigated on. Uh, The theory in the lower courts and then what was presented to the Supreme Court is the casino is a comparator, and so a church has to be treated at least as well. And if the casino was subject to the same 50-person restriction instead of a 50% restriction, then I doubt that a lawsuit would have been filed. Uh, But you can appreciate why the folks at the church would feel put out by the disparity when you could have a casino that seats a thousand people have 500 people and a church that seats a thousand people only have 50. Uh, No matter what standard you're trying to assert, that can't possibly survive constitutional scrutiny. So one of the things um, that the Chief Justice wrote in the opinion that you mentioned earlier um, was that these are really decisions that should be left to local officials and not to the judiciary. Why isn't that the case here? Well, the officials do get some discretion in a pandemic or other public health emergency, and the churches that filed suit here and in other cases, aren't contesting that point. Uh, But if you're going to say that people can gather thousands at a time inside a casino, but not inside a church, that's not based on science. Uh, It's not based on medicine. It's based simply on a desire to promote the gaming economy, which I understand is very important to Las Vegas, uh, but ignoring the spiritual economy, which is equally or more important to many, many people. And so while the the government has discretion, it does not have the ability to violate the First Amendment. And that's what's problematic here. And so, John, I think you would agree that religious liberty issues saw a lot of success this term in the argued cases at the court, especially towards the end with that string of multiple wins there. Do you see any disconnect between those wins for your side in a case like this and the other church case that you mentioned off the orders docket? Um, you know, on, on first sight or first glance, it might appear that there's a discrepancy there, but ultimately I don't think so. And I'm going to get hyper-legal technical on you here. Please do. Th- those other cases were all on the merits. And this case came up on the procedural posture of a request for an emergency injunction pending appeal. And those are two very different procedures. Uh, The court has made clear in numerous other cases that emergency stays pending appeal or emergency injunctions are very rare and should almost never be granted. And if you look at the history of Chief Justice Roberts' votes in these cases, he always comes down on the side of denying the emergency injunction on appeal. Whether it's the death penalty, whether it's voting rights, uh, you pick the topic. It's very difficult to find a decision that he's joined where he agrees that one of these emergency injunctions on appeal is appropriate. And so this case involving Calvary Chapel in Nevada will continue to be litigated on the merits of the preliminary injunction back in the Ninth Circuit. And when that proceeding is over, if 
the church is still being treated differently, I'm sure it will come back to the Supreme Court, and he could very well go the other way and agree with the dissenters simply because it's now a merits case and not an emergency injunction request. So you hinted at this a little bit, um, but this case came to the Supreme Court pretty early in the litigation. So what are the next steps for this case? The case is already being briefed at the Ninth Circuit. Um, The reply brief for the church will be submitted at the end of the month, and as soon as that's in, there'll be a request for an expedited oral argument. And with any luck, we should have a decision from a Ninth Circuit panel within just a couple of months. And so it's entirely possible that this could be back at the Supreme Court only with a cert petition instead of a request for the appellate injunction, um, really within a short time, just a matter of a couple of months. Before broadening the discussion out a bit to other issues and cases that you're looking forward to, John, wondering if we could get your take on something that's been somewhat of a theme on the podcast recently in talking about the shadow orders docket. So one feature of this case is that there wasn't an explanation from the majority as to why they ruled. And so just as a general Supreme Court expert, and I think this could well be seen as either a nonpartisan or bipartisan issue, however you want to put it, do you see that as an issue, not having an explanation, whether it's just as to your case specifically or to broader issues of court transparency more generally? I think Supreme Court practitioners and their clients generally would like to see more transparency when it comes to these shadow docket issues. Now, in some cases, just as a practical matter, it would be asking a lot for the court to give a reasoned decision for everything. So for example, the Supreme Court denies eight to 9,000 cert petitions per year, and to ask them to explain on each one of those why they were denying the cert petition isn't realistic or fair and isn't necessary. Um, I I don't think anyone would be advocating for that. But when you have a 5-4 decision on a request for an emergency injunction on appeal, that's a lot more substantive than just a denial of a cert petition. And it would be appreciated to be able to see the response. And it would not only be helpful to the parties in the instant case, or even the media and the general public, helping them to understand why the decision came out the way it did, but it would also provide guidance for lower court judges and litigants in other cases. So now we're back in the Ninth Circuit, and we have this very powerful set of dissents from four justices. Is that what the Ninth Circuit panel should follow? Um, Or should they follow the unreasoned decision of the majority, which simply denied the appellate injunction without any guidance as to whether that truly was procedural or whether there was some merit thought behind that? uh, It kind of leaves the Ninth Circuit panel floundering in the dark as to what they should do next. And it leaves other churches in the Ninth Circuit unclear as to whether they should be bringing lawsuits when comparable businesses are allowed to open with much larger numbers of people than churches. Um, So this is a clear instance of a case where that additional information and clarification would have been helpful. So as we look forward to the rest of the summer and next term starting in October, what are the issues that you're looking out for? Uh, Well, interestingly, one of the the issues that's going to be on the merits docket this fall, another Alliance Defending Freedom case, has some overlap with this Calvary Chapel case that we've been talking about. Because while this case is being litigated in the Ninth Circuit, as you know, the situation with COVID on the ground is changing day by day, sometimes hour by hour. By the time this case gets back to the U.S. Supreme Court again, it's entirely possible that the order that the Nevada governor issued that the church was complaining about will have changed. And so then the question is, will we ever get a definitive answer to this question? And the answer to that should be yes, because the church brought what's called a nominal damages claim. And that's one where you can't prove compensable injury. The Calvary Church can't state, 
Um, well, maybe they could. They, they could say they've lost you know, revenue when people don't come to church and make contributions, but that, that's not the, the tenor of their case. So say they can't prove money damages, but they still want a ruling from the courts on whether this action was constitutional under the Free Exercise Clause. That nominal damages claim should preserve the case. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to decide that very issue in probably uh, December. There'll be an argument and then a decision later in the year. And a, a tough one to pronounce, it's called Uzebunum. U-Z-U-E-G-B-U-N-A-M. And that's a case that involves a student who was attending a public college in Georgia. And he was trying to share his faith on campus. He was shut down because he didn't have a reservation and wasn't standing in the free expression zone on campus. Uh, that was an area that was only 0.0015% of, of the entire campus footprint. If you imagine a football field, it's about the size of an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. Um, but he went and he got the reservation. He was standing in the microscopic zone. And then he was stopped by the campus police because he had made someone uncomfortable. And if that happens on campus, that's considered disorderly conduct. And they can shut down your free speech to that as well. Uh, so he files his lawsuit. And um, eventually, the the campus, the college, changes its policy. And so that mooted any need for prospective injunctive relief, his declaratory relief. All it left was his nominal damages claim. And the 11th Circuit ended up throwing out the case and saying that it was moot, that nothing more could be done, notwithstanding the nominal damages. In eight other circuits, nominal damages will always keep a case alive because at the end of the day, just like with Calvary Chapel, we want a ruling from the court that says whether the Constitution was violated because that gives everybody guidance going forward. And without that, people don't know how to order their affairs. And you have problems with qualified immunity because campus officials or others who violate rights can say, well, there was no clearly established case law out there that told me that I couldn't do this. You know, I, I saw that one college change their policy, but I don't know that it was unconstitutional. Um, so th this nominal damages case in Uzabunum will be crucial to whether the folks in Calvary Chapel actually get a hearing on the merits someday. Well, we'll have to have you back on then again later in next term to talk about this case. But until then, we really appreciate you coming on this time and explaining your views on this. My pleasure. Happy to come back anytime. That Nevada church case came down last Friday night. We got another, yet another COVID-related order yesterday in a case from Idaho. Kimberly, you've been tracking this shadow docket litigation. Can you tell us what you found and how this latest Idaho case fits in? Well, these COVID-related cases aren't limited to the shadow docket, but that's where we've been getting opinions from the court. Notably, in the two dozen or so requests challenging COVID regulations, the court has ruled for federal, state, or local officials every single time, uh, except a procedural loss that the Trump administration eventually won. And Jordan, can you guess who is the only justice to be in the majority in all of these cases? I'm going to guess it's this John Roberts fellow who's been making a name for himself lately and people have been talking about more and more. Yes, the newbie. Uh, no surprise that it is uh, the Chief Justice. Uh, given his votes during the recently completed term, he had a similar record. So in this latest case, the Supreme Court reinstated Idaho's rules regarding ballot initiatives. The lower court had relaxed the deadlines for filing these signatures in support of the ballot initiative and allowed electronic signatures. And the Chief Justice wrote a concurring opinion joined by Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh that said that the state had met the high burden for SCOTUS intervention. So the only justices to dissent were Sotomayor and Ginsburg, or at least to note their dissent. Yes. 
And since the term supposedly, allegedly ended, we've still been busy with orders like the ones we've discussed on this episode, but we also got some inside information this week in the latest revelations from Joan Biskupic's series with a bunch of court scoops from the term. How does she do it? I don't know. Just out here, just bodying other reporters. <laughs> Kimberly, it seems like the most shocking thing that's revealed here is really the fact that any information at all is coming out of the usually leak-proof court. But in terms of the substance, was there anything in particular that stood out to you? Well, I think um, one small thing that stood out to me that was surprising was that there was actually no opinion assignment in one of the cases, Ramos. And so mm-hmm. I think we were all kind of thinking that uh, Justice Gorsuch was going to be um, out of the running for writing those big LGBT cases because he did mm-hmm. actually end up writing, writing the opinion in Ramos. But turns out that his opinion assignment was actually the LGBT cases. And he picked up Ramos as a, you know, a little treat. Yeah, that was interesting. What about you, Jordan? Well, um, one thing that stood out to me, I don't know, maybe it wasn't seemingly the biggest deal, but To me, learning how that political question doctrine issue uh, order from the court came up in the Trump subpoena litigation. So recall that heading into the Trump subpoena cases, it was all briefed and everything. But then we get this mystery order from the court asking the parties to file briefs and be ready to argue about the relevance of the political question doctrine to the issue, which basically could have mooted the issue. And so it raised all this speculation of, is that something that would help Trump? Is it something that would help Democrats? And more than all that, where was this coming from? Who on the court wanted that? And so we learned that according to the story anyway, it came from Justice Kavanaugh, who apparently was looking for ways to avoid hot button issues, if assuming that that's what that would have done. And so we learned from the story that it was Kavanaugh who was basically lobbying internally for this and that none of the other justices really wanted it, which was kind of obvious in how it didn't come up at all during the arguments. That was yet another thing that was making me wonder anyway, where did all this come from in the first place? It seemed to have disappeared just as quickly as it emerged from the shadows. And so um, maybe that's not the biggest ticket item in the cases generally. Obviously, she also wrote about how the initial vote in those subpoena cases was potentially a a 5-4. And so that was interesting too. But just given how opaque the court's procedures are, I just always am interested to hear about how these things are actually coming about with the justices asking for things like extra briefings. So that's what stood out to me. Wow, we're nerds. The The most shocking thing for both of us was extra briefing and opinion assignments. Yeah, yeah that's, um, what can I say? That's what you're going to get here. Um, so somehow we got yet another health update about Justice Ginsburg, mm-hmm. who's just mm-hmm. really been, um, you know, dealing with a lot to put it mildly, uh, following her belated disclosure that she's battling cancer for a fifth time. Kimberly, can you catch us up on that one? Right. So on Wednesday, uh, the court let us know that Justice Ginsburg underwent a non-surgical procedure to revise a bile duct stent. This was something that she had placed uh, back in August. Um, So the court said that this is, you know, something that generally happens, nothing to see here. She's doing fine and resting comfortably, but um, yet another obstacle for Justice Ginsburg. 
And so now that we've spoken about the fate of the Republic and weighty constitutional issues, let's get into what's the most important news of the week, Kimberly, mm -hmm. uh, which is that mm -hmm. you discovered an important meme related to the second oldest justice, the one and only Justice Breyer. Tell us how you did it. <laughs> So Justice Breyer attended the ABA's annual meeting, which for the first time was held virtually. And he appeared to be in some kind of log cabin. Um, and Justice Breyer being Justice Breyer, um, you know, if you, <laughs> if you watch him speak for any amount of time, he's going to make silly faces. And, uh, you know, everybody should check it out on, on my Twitter feed. Having nothing really to do, not much to do with politics, and, and uh, is uh, connected. Uh, we're connected through the internet, which works occasionally. <laughs> we are connected uh, via fast uh, transportation. We're connected via trade. We're connected in a thousand different ways. So lastly, mercifully, because SCOTUS is everywhere, um, we even heard President Obama former President Obama speaking at civil rights icon John Lewis's funeral, calling out the court's 2013 Shelby County ruling for, in the president's view anyway, uh, helping to dismantle voting protections across the country. But once the Supreme Court weakened the Voting Rights Act, some state legislators unleashed a flood of laws designed specifically to make voting harder. He also um, <clears throat> referred to the filibuster as a, a Jim Crow law, right? Which That's is right. interesting because um, <clears throat> court watchers may remember that uh, then-Senator Obama actually filibustered Samuel Alito's nomination to the Supreme Court. So That's right. I guess you got to use what's in front of you, right? Well, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court and voting cases heading into the election on future episodes, but we're going to be off for a few weeks to take a little mini summer vacation. I've got a staycation planned. How about you, Jordan? Um, I didn't even know there were other options besides that. Should I look <laughs> into that? Uh, don't bother. There's nothing, there's nothing available. Uh, until then, you can follow us on Twitter and check out news.bloomberglaw.com for the latest Supreme Court news. The killers of Berta Caceres had every reason to believe they'd get away with murder. Her work as an environmental activist won her the admiration of celebrities in California, politicians in Washington, and the indigenous communities she worked alongside in Honduras. It also earned her powerful enemies. On a new podcast from Bloomberg Green, Blood River follows a four-year quest to find Berta Caceres' killers. Join journalist Monty Real and the team from Bloomberg Green as they untangle false leads and mishandled evidence, taking listeners deep into a sector of international development that's marked by high-level corruption and rampant violence. Blood River debuts Monday, July 27th on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. <laughs> 